all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 360 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Rubik's episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that there just so happens to be a 3D mechanical puzzle called the Rubik's 360. That's right, folks. It's an actual ball of Rubik's madness physical dexterity and everything, highly addictive, released in 2009. And with that wonderful little bit of Rubik's knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim! And happy week after Black Friday to you, Matthew. Hey, I'll tell you what, I'm I'm enjoying not uh, dealing with Black Friday nonsense anymore i mean was that a thing you had to deal with before were you an avid block block shopper (laughs) black friday (laughs) shopper i have never been an avid black friday shopper mainly because of all the many many years i spent in retail but even uh even though i did not participate in the black friday nonsense there's still a ton of extra traffic out there so even when i was doing the old pizza thing you still had to be really careful of all the idiots out there running around shopping and stuff. Um, but no, no, no. We, we always just, the only thing we do on Black Friday, uh, is we will go and get our Christmas tree. And, and then, and so we'll do that on Black Friday because it's never really insane. It's not very far away and it's, and it's a lot of fun. Do they ever have uh, Black Friday deals on Christmas trees? They do not. I assure you, the prices you pay for those trees are astronomical for what they are. That yeah, there's there's no Black Friday sale there. But um, no, I mean it's it's still a really fun experience. Um, we we ended up getting our tree on Friday, and then we did go and do uh Frozen Two that evening. So like seven thirty show, and let me tell you, I am. As much as I love A-list, I am, I am just sick of my local AMC theater. I am completely done with them. Like, so done. Really? I think what really irked me was despite all the madness inside the theater and the people who were being idiots and all the stupid stuff that was going on, um, when I went to go complain to the manager, they had the audacity to be irritated with me about it. You know? Well, I'm sorry. I spent $70 to be here tonight. How about you go do your job? (laughs) So what was going on? Just like kids going nuts or? Yeah, kids literally running. And I don't mean little kids. I mean like teenagers running up and down the staircase thing, uh, up and down the aisle, banging around. Uh, People literally on their phones constantly, incessantly. Um, People with little kids, um, which... You know, family movie, 730. I get there's going to be kids, you know, so I'm not like mad that the kids are there. Um, I'm, I'm upset that when they are being disruptive, the parents don't do anything about it. Like, look, hey, I get it. You're trying to be nice to, to your kids. You know, I'm trying to be patient because I get that they're kids, but when they just won't shut up, I think you need to cut your losses and take them out of the theater for a little bit, you know? Um, 
that kind of stuff. You had people who were literally, you know, talking and goofing and jumping around in the seats and stuff. Um, it was just literal, almost pandemonium. And so I'm like, I'm just done. This was like 15 minutes straight. So I'm already distracted. I can't really pay attention to the movie. People around me are all starting to talk and get irritated. Uh, so eventually I get up and go find the, the, the manager and the, and I'm like, look, you've got, you know, chaos going on in that theater over there. Um, and you need to have somebody go in there. And the lady's like, well, I am just so sorry, sir, but we've had to deal with 500 people in the lobby. I'm like, you've got 500 people in that theater over there who are going to be really mad at you. So I don't care what's the, what your problem is out here. Get some more staff. And she's, and she's still trying to argue with me. And I'm like, look, I don't care. I simply don't care. And I literally told her that I do not care. It's not my problem. My problem is your crap going on in this theater. And it happens every time it's busy. Every time it's busy. It's not just tonight. It's every time it's busy. And I've spent the better part of $70 to be here this evening. And that was after my A-list stuff. And after my discount. And after using $25 in rewards coupons because of all the money I'd already spent over the last few months. Um at AMC. So it really should have been uh $120? Sure. Yeah. And it was the five of you, right? Six? Cuz my dad was here. Oh, gotcha. Oh, wow. I don't care that you don't know how to staff your place on a Friday night on one of the busiest weekends of the year for you. I don't care that you don't know how to keep your place clean and you And that was opening night for Frozen, right? Nah, it had been open for a week. Oh, okay. You know, I, and I don't care that you don't know how to staff. I don't care that you don't know how to take care of your place. I care that you can't keep one person, you know, on your staff that can patrol the theaters. That's all they need. You just need one person whose sole job it is, is to just walk into a theater and look for five minutes. And that's their job. Spend five minutes in a theater. At the absolute worst, you've got... You know, eight theaters, that's 40 minutes. They can do a loop every 40 minutes. No theater is ever without somebody in it for more than, say, you know, 30, 30 minutes or so, 35 minutes. People know that the theaters are being checked on. They won't act up. Yeah. This is, I, I, this is, not, a, this is not that hard of a concept. Yeah, I've been even getting ticked off with uh, the AMC near me because on more than a handful of occasions, the sound is off. And there's a chain out here of Arclight Theaters where somebody hangs out for the first 10 minutes of the movie to make sure the sound and the picture quality is up to Arclight standards. Well, they need to do that same thing with every single theater, you know, especially at AMC. And the, the thing is, and, and this is what gets me, what absolutely gets me is that this isn't even something that would cost a lot of money. I mean, it just, it, it's not even something that would literally cost a lot of money and your, and your consumer satisfaction rating would go through the roof. You know, which would get more people coming back in, which would mean it would more than cover the cost of the one person you're paying whose job it is to make sure the sound is right, the picture's right, and people aren't screwing around. Did you write them a letter? No. I should have. Well, it's I only would. been four days, should. five days. I probably should. Yeah. But 
I got other problems I'm dealing with, so I don't know that I'm going to have time for all that. Christmas came early on Matt this year. Right? All over, Matt. Well, I spent my Black Friday uh, enjoying the aftermath of that Thanksgiving holiday that apparently comes before Black Friday. Um, But I took advantage of Cyber Monday for the first time, and boy, did they have some great movie deals. Uh, I know next year, Sony is releasing the PS5 in in time for holiday, the holiday season 2020, and they're supposed to have a 4K Mm. uh, Blu-ray, you know, compatibility or whatever. So uh, I took the uh, the advantage, I, I took advantage of the $9 4K movies that they had on Amazon and got myself Gladiator, Braveheart, um, Apocalypse Now, the 4K rendition, the final cut, and one other one. Oh yeah, The Big Lebowski. And in fact, you can actually find most of those uh, for the same price now, if anybody is interested. I'm not sure if it's like a Cyber Monday week or if it's just Monday through Tuesday or not, but some pretty good deals for them 4K Blu-rays. Sweet. Well, good to know. Uh, but was the Thanksgiving proper pleasant for you, sir? It was good. I ate, I drank, sipped on some eggnog. Nobody in the wife's family enjoys it other than me and the wife. And probably the happiest Thanksgiving moment I witnessed all weekend long was the joy that came across my wife's face when she realized she could drink eggnog while pregnant because it was pasteurized (laughs) eggnog. Oh, that's funny. Yes, uh, myself, my daughter, and my dad, if he's feeling froggy, are the only people at our house that will do eggnog. So we always have a little bit of eggnog on hand just for, just to have. And our Thanksgiving was also fantastic. Um, another, another wonderful turkey by yours truly. Yeah, that was definitely on the Insta. Definitely put that up on the Insta for sure. Aren't you hip? The Insta? Oh, yeah. I, when yeah. I hear Insta, I think of the Insta pot. Right? It's definitely, it's definitely, and, and I got one of those as well. <laughs> uh, so now that we've killed a whole lot of unnecessary time talking about some other stuff, uh, I guess we have a show we should do. I believe so. All right, then. Here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> Okay, and I'd like to start off with just a fun little website. Uh, now, I did share this with uh, Tim before in the pre-show, as before we got going, because I just thought it was something that's really cool. It is, <laughs> um, it's a simple website, though it sounds very confusing. The website is literally called Every Character Actor Behind a Desk in a Coen Brothers Film dot com. <laughs> Just type that sentence in. It's easy. Every character actor behind a desk in a Coen Brothers film. Dot com. Uh, and it's, and it's fantastic. You can, uh, see it's very simple, elegant layout. It's just simply says in white type face on a black background, every character actor behind a desk in a Coen Brothers film. And then on the right hand side, you see elegantly organized all of these different uh, stills 
from the various films uh, that the Coen brothers have done. And you can click on them. So, for instance, you can click on Raising Arizona, and then the still comes up, and there's a wonderful quote. Listen, Leonard, if you want some furniture or a shitbox, they're out on the sales floor. The actor? Trey Wilson. The film, Raising Arizona, the year, 1987. And it's just a fantastic way to look at these great character actors that the Coen brothers have found throughout their many, many years of doing movies. And, uh, I mean, if you've ever seen like Barton Fink and you don't know who Michael Lerner is, you will when you see the still. You're like, oh my, that's who that is. And you get to see the fun quotes that are related to them and everything. It's just absolutely fantastic. I assure you, this is just a fun little website. Uh, and I just wanted to share it with you. I, I don't know, Tim, did you, Happen to click on a few stills between in, in the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes? A few, yeah. I would like to see them expand this to other films. It'd be kind of fun to have a whole website dedicated to the art of acting behind a desk. And how many Very great cool. BC actors are actually willing to <laughs> play so many roles that require them to sit behind a desk? So there's quite a few of them. But anyways, yeah, so just something light and fun that I wanted to start off with. So that was all I wanted to jump in there. Go ahead, sir. I know you've got some, uh, you've got a lot more precious content than I do. First up from me via SlashFilm.com, Disney Plus desperately needs a host for its older content. Here's why, written by Josh Spiegel and published on November 29th. And it says this, Since Disney Plus went live, there have been a lot of different discussion points swirling around among fans of the various and sundry titles available on the streaming service. If you have somehow not heard, the original Star Wars was revised once more so that Greedo says McClunkly, McClunkly, (laughs) McClunky, there we go, I can read, or something that sounds an awful like McClunky, before being shot by Han... And The Simpsons' first 20 seasons, give or take, are not currently being presented in the correct aspect ratio. Most importantly, a lot of Disney films, shorts, and TV shows feature a brief warning message in their dedicated page on the service regarding, quote, outdated cultural depictions, end quote. Disney Plus is still young, relatively speaking. There's plenty of reasons to assume that the new service is going to continue making changes in the days, weeks, and months to come. The outcry regarding The Simpsons already has led to Disney Plus stating that the original aspect ratio for affected episodes will be offered sometime in early 2020. And that's fitting, because as such of the Walt Disney Company is defined by how it changes and makes itself better. Consider this essay as an argument for one way in which Disney Plus can be updated and soon. The streaming service needs a host. Actually, I'm not going to read the whole article, so I'm just going to read this uh, little segment here because it does go on for quite some time. Uh, First, a bit of background. It says, uh, Disney Plus, on the whole, cannot brand itself as the equivalent of Turner Classic Movies. Although it boasts hundreds of older films, the service doesn't have quite as many options from cinema past. However, a large chunk of the films, shorts, and shows offered on the service could have 
found a home on TCM back in the day. In fact, not so long ago, some of the films offered on the streaming service, including 70s-era fairs such as Snowball Express and Candleshoe, did get presented on TCM as part of their quarterly treasures from the Disney Vault series. Turner Classic Movies isn't just a wonderful cable channel because it offers a repository of a hundred years worth of cinema. TCM succeeds because it offers context about the repository as often as possible. Depending on the time of day, it doesn't matter what movie you're watching on TCM, an untouchable and easy-to-rewatch classic like 2001 A Space Odyssey or a more obscure foreign or silent film. If it's the weekend or weeknight, you'll likely see the beaming face of a cinephile such as Ben Mankiewicz or Alicia Malone presenting a brief introduction with a little bit of clarity and historical context before the film begins. Of course, they're following in the footsteps of the late great Robert Osborne, who served as the chief host of TCM for more than two decades before passing away in 2017. Though Disney Plus doesn't have the exact same wealth of content that TCM can boast, it does have decades worth of classic films, shorts, and TV shows that need some kind of context before a casual viewer begins watching. Take, for example, the 1941 film The Reluctant Dragon, whose poster peers out at you on Disney Plus with a colorful animated dragon, but if you click play on the film, you might need to know what you're getting into. A mix of live action and animation, a blend of fiction and nonfiction, all wrapped up in a tour of the Walt Disney Studios. Disney Plus could have a host offering up just a few minutes worth of fun facts and clarifying details before the main attraction begins. And the good news is there's a perfect candidate for this possible job. Leonard Malton. And the article does go on for quite a bit more from there. Uh, I highly recommend you guys check it out. I think it's an interesting idea. I personally do not have Disney Plus, so I do not feel qualified to directly comment. Matthew, you do have Disney Plus. Do you think Disney Plus would benefit from having a host to talk about the older films in the Disney catalog? Oh, I think it would be fantastic. I think that um especially with their content markers you know this is presented in its original form uh may not be suitable or you know it may not whatever it is for current audiences yada 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 um i think that would be fantastic and it wouldn't even be something that would be uh difficult because you could literally just put it as an extra and then just make it as an intro or um ha- have it tacked on as an intro and then just uh put the put the two play buttons next to each other you know like with intro without intro um for those who would like to do it and it, and it would be something very simple for them to test they could take like um with the data that they get over these first few months they could they could see okay these are the classics that are getting hit the most let's record a little you know 3 or 4 minute intro for each one of these say like dozen or so classics and then, and, and then just see, oh, well, it looks like people are hitting the, the play button with the intro more than not, or we're not getting any feedback about automatically tacking on this intro, um, and, or the feedback we do get is good. So then they can expand on it. I mean, it's a simple test. 
doesn't cost a whole lot, um, might encourage more people to look at the back catalog. Uh, like, for example, I was talking about some older movies, at least in terms of even for me, because I remember them when I was a little kid. I like the Apple Dumpling Gang, the Apple Dumpling Gang Rides Again. Uh, and I think those would also be really good. Um, you could go back to like Pollyanna, Swiss Family Robinson, all that, all those classic films. Seems like a great idea. Cool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do this. I've got two more pieces of news here from streamingobserver.com and we'll do, I'll do one at a time. Uh, streaming, streamingobserver.com by way of the streaming observer staff, uh, says that Netflix's movie catalog has shrunk by 40% since 2014. That's right, folks. They write, it feels, if it feels like it's gotten harder to find movies to watch on Netflix, that's because it has. Since 2014, Netflix's catalog of movies has dropped by 40%, with over 2,600 films fewer now um, that are available for streaming. And things may only get worse in the coming months as Comcast, Fox, Warner Media, and Disney all continue to pull content from Netflix to bolster their own streaming services. Uh, in short, back in March of 2014, there was 6,494 movies. Uh, as of November 20th, it's down to 3,849. So that's pretty crazy. Um, it says here, though, uh, that clearly the, all of the influx of competition has been the biggest problem because everybody has decided they don't want a middleman. They want to do it themselves. And this is what's, uh, this is what's kind of gone on for them. Uh, they do write that Netflix saw the writing on the wall early on and they started to shift their focus to developing its own original movies and TV uh, rather than licensing the content. And they have spent billions of dollars doing so. But I think this is a pretty cool thing. It says here that, but the reality is while Netflix keeps pumping out new content every week and announcing tons of upcoming projects, it can't keep up. So its content slate continues to shrink, with its film library taking the biggest hit. Parenthetically, it does say that Netflix has actually rebuilt its TV show library over the past few years from 1,197 in 2016, which was actually down from 1,609 in 2014 to 1,784 today. So even in 2014, it had over 1,600 TV shows. It dropped down to under 1,200 in 2016, and now they're almost up to 1,800. So it seems like a pretty good recovery. The question is, is it going to be enough? And... That's where I want to leave this. Again, uh, please feel free. It's a pretty short article, streamingobserver.com, by way of Streaming Observer staff. Netflix's movie catalog has shrunk by 40% since 2014. Tim, what do you think? Do you think, uh, do you think Netflix is gonna be able to fend it all off and ride off to the sunset? I don't know. Or... I mean, it makes sense why they don't have the, uh, as large uh, of a, of a catalog as they did back in the day because a lot of studios want more profit in the streaming service they want they, they want more skin in the game 
I mean, it all makes sense. This is why Netflix is producing more and more of their own original content. This is why they're doing more TV shows and more sure. uh, documentaries. They're doing more distribution. So people will keep subscribing to, to Netflix. It I isn't agree. surprising and, too much. I mean, it's a shame. Well, I know, but on the same on the same token, I think that the fact that they caught it early on and that they've pivoted well. I mean, I think obviously, I don't think it will stay the juggernaut that it has always been. But I truly do not believe. I I, I believe that Netflix has done enough pivoting. They've done enough proper shifting that while they won't be number one ever again, um. Or I guess, though I guess they'll be number one just by sheer volume because I don't think any one of the services is going to be able to swallow up enough content to to really take Netflix out. Um, but I think Netflix, on the whole, has really more or less kind of become the new air quotes cable. It's just something that everybody has because it's what they've always had. Uh, and Netflix has been smart enough to keep just enough critical content that it's worth most people paying the 12 bucks a month for. And so, uh, I, I do, however, think that one thing that's going to hurt them a lot if they don't fix it is annual subscriptions. But I think that financially they've put themselves in a position where they need that incoming cash every month. Uh, that they can't afford to offer annual subscriptions. Sure. And the fact that everybody else is, you know, whatever. Although, you had talked about uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of episodes ago, you had talked about the toys that made us. Mm -hmm. And so I managed to make sure to watch all those episodes. Um, yeah, I managed to watch The Irishman and all those episodes <laughs> <laughs> um, over last week. But I also discovered they've they've branched out. They have the movies that made us. Yes, I've watched a few of those. Oh man, I watched. Yeah, I watched all four. I did Dirty Dancing, Ghostbusters, Home Alone, and uh, Die Hard. Uh, they're all they're all fantastic. Yeah, they're very much glorified making of documentaries that you would find on DVD special features fifteen years ago or so, or even those like t make, uh, movie magic TV shows from like the mid to late nineties that they used to have. Uh, True. But I, I love it because you don't see behind-the-scenes featurettes like this anymore. So it's cool to have these 45-, 46-minute making-of, history-of nuggets from these cool 80, 80s movies. Even with Ghostbusters, which I'm kind of sick and tired of Ghostbusters, it was fun to watch because they provided some information that even I really didn't know. Well, not only that, what I, what I think is so good is that they get so many of the critical people who were involved in the production, and occasionally it does cross over into the stardom as well, especially with Ghostbusters, um, where Dan Aykroyd was so involved in the writing and everything, um, and the initial production and pre-production that, you know, he gets to tell the story in a way that you wouldn't see otherwise. And I also like the editing style where they kind of cut back and forth between uh, the people and, and how they talk and what might have happened and stuff. So Via Variety.com, immersive theater technology debuts in U.S. with Jumanji Next Level, written by Dave McNary, and it was published on December 3rd. It says this, 
French multiplex company CGR Cinema has selected Sony's Jumanji The Next Level as the first Hollywood film to be shown in the U.S. with its immersive cinema experience technology. The announcement was made Tuesday by execs from AEG, Sony, and CGR at the Regal LA Live in downtown LA, which was named earlier this year as the site for first film in the ICE, I think ICE, theaters format. I hope it's just ICE and not ICE. I continue. Launched three years ago by CGR, the immersive format works with five LED panels flanking each side of an auditorium, filling peripheral vision with complementary colors. The panels are made by CGR at an in-house post-production house in La Rochelle, France. CGR said that ICE or ICE auditoriums account for 32 of its total 680 screens, but generated 75% of CGR's box office revenue in 2018. Quote, experiencing films in the ICE or ICE theaters format brings a unique and exciting cinematic experience to get movie fans out of the home and into the theater, end quote, said Scott Schur of Sony Pictures Entertainment's Motion Picture Group. Quote, we're excited to give consumers a choice to see Jumanji the next level in this compelling way only in theaters. End quote. The Regal LA Live Complex was also one of the earliest sites with 4DX technology from Korea-based CJ4D Plex. In addition to a real 3D theater installation, each seat in the auditorium is designed to tilt, shake, and vibrate in time with what is happening on screen. CJ4DP Lex is currently operating in 678 theaters. And that's the end of the article there. I remember some years ago, I believe it was uh, during the the release of the very first Maze Runner movie. I didn't see any of them. I can't tell you when the first one came out. Four or five years ago, something like that. And there was a theater that already introduced this technology, but it seemed a little bit more practical. If you go to the variety article here at the very top they have a picture and i'm assuming this is what the theater will look like you have your standard theater screen in front of you but then you have these slivers of panels you know going along the side of the theater and it looks like there's one two three four five at least six panels on each side. And like they said, they're going to be showing, I believe, complementary colors and shapes to go along with the movie. Now, with the Maze Runner, I remember these panels being significantly larger, and I believe they did kind of the same thing. So I'm not really too sure what these slivers of paneling will add to the movie-going experience, but... I guess we'll see. I mean, I guarantee you they're going to jack up the price of admission. And I also guarantee you that people will not pay that cost to go see this movie in such a niche format, especially if the filmmakers themselves aren't the ones producing the complementary images or shapes on the side paneling or that's being shown on the side paneling. But Uh, Matt, what do you think about this? Do you like the idea that they're trying to come up with inventive ways 
to bring people to the movie theater or do you think just think it's like a weird company money grab ploy i don't know that it's necessarily just a blatant money grab ploy obviously they are in the business they're in business to make money um i guess i'm a little confused though are these panels are they between the seats or are they on the walls of the the theater uh, they're on the wall. I'm uh, sending you the link right now so you can actually take a look. I'm assuming, okay. I mean, this movie that they're showing in this picture looks like it's Hobbs and Shaw. And because this was developed overseas, I'm also assuming that Hobbs and Shaw was shown in this format. So you can kind of get an idea of what they're going for. Okay, so it's just supposed to be like ambient lighting, ambient imagery that kind of helps to keep you engrossed in what's going on? I suppose, yes. But at the same time, there's still that space in between the panels. So if you happen to be in one of those seats where, I don't know, in your peripherals, all you see is like that black space, it kind of defeats the purpose. True. I'm I'm assuming, though, that you'll be able to see it from the peripheral of the other side, or if you're looking at it, you can use the other panels in front of you uh, to, to kind of gauge that. Um, I don't know. It kind of reminds me of a real, of those that really hype of, I'm sorry, let me, <laughs> it reminds me of a very hyped up version of those televisions that came out a few years ago that had the ambient led lighting around the outside so like if you were if a forest was up on the screen there would be a green ambient light around the edge uh you know if you were looking at the sky there would be like a blue ambient light around the edge of the screen i didn't get that then i I thought it was just kind of like weird um but um, maybe it could work here. I, I don't know. It does seem to be... It, it does seem to be something that I don't quite figure out how it's going to work. Because like you said, this is not something that's done by the filmmakers. This is literally something that's added in way after post-production, more than likely by this particular company. And if you look at the picture, like the side paneling... It looks like it's just yeah. zo- a zoomed-in picture of what's behind Jason Statham. You know, you see like that building that has that right. arc. You can see that yeah. in the side panel. Yeah, it just. I, and again, I'm, I'm trying to. I'm, it's like so. Are you, it's it's trying to like maybe give you an image or give you an idea, a feeling that you're in the room with them, looking out the windows of the same building. There, I don't know. I, you know, I I guess. I guess I would at least be willing to try it once for the experience, but that's not that's not a reason to invest in that over here for someone to try it once. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, hey, at least at least you're by it, so, <laughs> so so you can go check it out. Yeah, I might have a regal gift card somewhere. I can see if I have twenty five bucks on it. There you go. Cool. Well, then let's see. My last piece of news uh, from newyork.cbslocal.com. Um, and I do not have a direct attribution for it. Uh, 
Netflix to reopen famed Paris theater in Manhattan. That's right, folks. While Manhattan's last single-screen movie theater shuts its shut its doors at the end of August, the lights will be back on part of the time at the Paris theater thanks to its next owner, Netflix. The streaming media giant announced that it had started a new lease on the 71-year-old venue to use it for Netflix original movie debuts, special events, and other screenings. The exact terms of the lease were not disclosed. Uh, let's see. Uh, apparently earlier in November, the company used the venue to, uh, have showings of Marriage Story, which is a film by New York filmmaker Noah Baumbach. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, let's see here. It says here that, uh, the Paris Theater opened in 1948 with Mar- actress Marlene Dietrich on hand for its ribbon cutting ceremony. Originally specializing in French cinema, it was one of the country's oldest art house theaters until it was shuttered in August. Uh, Ted Sarandos, Netflix's chief content officer, says, quote, after 71 years, the Paris Theater has an enduring legacy and remains the destination for one-of-a-kind movie-going experience. We are proud, and we are incredibly proud to preserve this historic New York institution so it can continue to be a cinematic home for film lovers, end all quotes. Um, what do you think, Tim? Uh, just, uh, just something to be nice and have a kind of historic cool art house setting to show their stuff or a necessary move given the hostility of theaters towards netflix i I remember reading about the theater shutting down a month or two ago and it just kind of stinks because there aren't i mean if there's any major city in the united states you would think new york to have the most number of art house cinemas in town. Now, going back to our previous Netflix discussion, since Netflix is distributing better films, I think that would be a good way for them to showcase those films. For instance, The Irishman. They could show The Irishman there, and I believe, I mean, I don't I don't know if it's one screen or not, or I can't remember if you said if it was one screen or two screens. But if it's one screen, great. They could show The Irishman there for like two weeks. They can show The Irishman there for a month. Marriage Story, they can show The Marriage Story there for a month or two weeks. They're going to be coming out, or they already released uh, The Two Popes. That'll be coming out on Netflix, streaming sometime in December, but it's in theaters now. They'll be able to show that movie at that theater. So for them, it's a good call to jump in that market since they are having quality films that I think it would reach that type of audience that would maybe respect Netflix more or associate Netflix as a compatible distribution company that makes or that distributes quality films, you know? So I think in some way this also gives them an advantage, especially over Amazon and their original movies. Sure, not to mention all it takes is like what? 14 of these things across the country and then there's your movies there's your there's your movie requirement for the oscars congratulations we don't need you we've got nationwide you know coverage that we can release for two weeks at a time uh if they're operating if they're the sole operators of the lease it's literally just a lease payment they only have to they only have to open it whenever they're going to show something so it seems like a, you know their only operating loss per se would be just, you know, the actual lease payment. 
you know, if they're doing it that way. So I don't know. It'd be pretty cool. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But at any rate, that is my news, sir. Bring us home on the news front. Last for me via the playlist.com. Cat's director was fascinated by negative trailer reaction and says film's final CGI will be much better. This here was published on December 2nd and written by Charles Barfield, and it says this, If there is a film trailer, Hall of Shame 2019 would have several inductees. However, for as bad as the first Aladdin trailer was, or the initial glimpse at Sonic the Hedgehog, the early Cats preview will likely go down as one of the worst received trailers of the last decade, and sparked massive mocking blowback. No matter who you ask, the trailer was either laughably bad, downright creepy, or both. But for filmmaker Tom Hooper, he's just happy that people were talking about his film at all. Speaking to Empire Hooper, who was asked about the reaction to the first Cats trailer, and the director was surprisingly upbeat about it. In fact, he doesn't chalk the adverse reaction up to anything but unfinished CGI. Quote, I was just so fascinated because I didn't think it was controversial at all. So it was quite entertaining. Cats was apparently the number one trending topic in the world for a good few hours at least, end quote, said the filmmaker. Yeah, a good few hours is an understatement. For weeks after the first trailer for Cats was released, the film found itself almost universally ridiculed for the look of the feline characters, particularly in how they all seemed a bit creepier than intended. Hooper admits, however, that the CGI that was found in that first trailer was a rough draft for what the finished film will look like. He even goes so far as to suggest that perhaps the reaction to the first trailer helped the filmmaker and his visual effects team help craft the final look. The article does go on from there. Again, that was via the playlist. Cat's director was fascinated by negative trailer reaction and says film's final CGI will be much better. I'm curious, Matt, what do you think about this? Because I have heard from a lot of people that they will not watch the second trailer, let alone see the movie, because of how much they hated the look of the first trailer. And I get it. For big CGI films, it is difficult for them to put out a good trailer, especially if the entire movie is CGI, because three months before the, the film releases, special effects are not finished. When you release a te teaser trailer, the only visual effects that are finished in the movie are what's shown in that trailer. And I had an idea that the visual effects weren't finished, because I just know how these things go. Unfortunately... I, I can't help but to think that sometimes these people, these companies, movies, shoot themselves in the foot by releasing unfinished footage too soon because people will react poorly to it and therefore may not go and see it because of how they felt about their initial reaction. But what do you think about all this? There, there seems to be one key, I guess, fact missing from all this. That one key fact is Sonic. People were upset with the way Sonic looked because that was, they're like, that is not Sonic the Hedgehog. Updated for 2019 or not, whatever, that is not Sonic the Hedgehog. But here's the thing. People already know Sonic the Hedgehog. There is a dedicated fan base, a 
27-year fan base of gamers. That's minimum two generations of people who care about Sonic, which is one of the reasons the, the, it was so vitriolic, which means there's a reason for them to look at the second trailer. The fact that people were not just disgusted by the CGI of the Cats trailer, but also were like, this movie is complete insanity. What the hell? And don't get me wrong. I mean, we're talking about, you know, um, the, the, we're talking, we're talking, I mean, the original Broadway play is this ethereal fantasy of, you know, cats walking into the light in a junkyard. So whatever. I mean, I guess you get to do whatever the heck you want with the movie. There's not enough people who are dedicated to cats to give the next trailer a second look. And I think that's what's going to kill it. Um, I saw the trailer and you know what? The CGI didn't bother me so much because like you, I understood that they have time to alter the CGI, you know, if the, if the feedback comes back, uh, much like it did. But that doesn't stop the trailer from being a dumpster fire, which is what it was. I mean, it was pure hot garbage and it doesn't make me want to see this movie. I don't care who's in it. I, it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't look like it's going to be anything worthwhile. And yeah, it looks like garbage. So, I don't know. I don't want to see it. I have no desire to see it. Quite frankly, I don't care if it gets nominated for anything. I still don't plan on seeing it. I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I just think it's one of those, I mean, it's cats. I guess that's been a a thing that always bothered me, what people say about the musical. I get it. You don't like it. Not a big deal. But it's Cats. I mean, the music's great for the most part. But I don't know. I think it's going to be one of those experience, you know, movies. But I don't think it looks bad. I just think it's different. And I'm willing to give different a a shot. Hey, there there were people. One of my favorite uh, video essayists on YouTube, uh, Patrick uh, H. Willems, uh, he also was going on, uh, about how, yes, it does look weird. Yes, it does look insane. No, it doesn't make any sense, but that's exactly why I want to see it. Uh, you just don't see movies that get made like this, and this is a great opportunity to see something. You may not even like it when you ultimately end up seeing it, but you should see this movie. Um, so I totally respect where he's coming from. I respect where you're coming from on it. I just, it just does not do it for me. I'm sorry. I, I can't, I can't change that. So, uh, but you know, I guess we'll, we'll all find out when it gets here. One way or the other. And that's my news. All right. Well, next week, looks like we're going to have news once again. Don't worry, folks. We have a very special bonus segment coming soon. Coming soon. Give us two more episodes. So not next week, but the week after, we're going to have a super, super duper cool special bonus segment um, that is going to pretty much be the entirety of two episodes. <gasps> Ooh teasers teasers um coming through so uh yeah so next week we'll do uh some news and then we'll 
move on from there. So without further ado, though, I guess it is time to do some movies, is it not? Let's movie it up. There you heard the man. It's the movie we So this week we have got Knives Out and 2019's The Irishman. Not to be confused with 1978's The Irishman. Not that you were going to do that. <laughs> but it turns out there's a movie from 1978 called The Irishman. So what do you know? Um, where, where do you want to start there, sir? Let's start with Knives Out. Harlan started out with a rusty Smith Corona and built himself into one of the best-selling mystery writers of all time. 30 languages, over 80 million copies sold. You guys fans? I mean, I don't do much fiction reading myself. Big but... fan. I'm a big fan. Who is that guy? Uh, Mr. Blanc is a private investigator of great renown. I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. You're famous. The night of his demise, the family had gathered to celebrate your father's 85th birthday. And your son, Ransom, did he attend as well? Yes, but he left early. I think Linda was upset. Walt would get a little Irish courage in him. He'd get into it with Harlan. What? Richard said what? Are you baiting me, detective? Attempting to be thorough so we can figure out the manner of death. You mean if someone killed him? <laughs> you think one of us, one of his family, Walt, Walt. killed him? Mr. Blanc, I just buried my father who committed suicide. Why are you here? I suspect foul play. I have eliminated no suspects. Knives Out, 2019 American murder mystery film. This is a written, produced, and directed by Ryan Johnson. And it is basically a modern, uh, it's like a modern Agatha Christie, uh, story, if you will. Uh, it has got a killer cast, no pun intended, uh, consisting of Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Anna de Armas, ja- uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Shannon, Don Johnson, Tony Collette, Lakeith Stanfield, Catherine Langford, Jaden Martelli, I'm sorry, Jaden Martell, and Christopher Plummer. Um, important to note, cinematography by Steve Yedlin. Now, this is a film that centers around the murder of Harlan Thromby, who, um, the evening after his 85th birthday, is murdered. Or is he? There is a question of murder versus suicide. And the whole family comes together to find out what has happened. Now, there's also the question of they were already together due to the 85th birthday. They're also together due to the death. They're do, they're there because of, you know, a will that's going to have to be read and they're there to determine ultimately who done it. And who's here to make sure we find out who done it? Why? Mr. Benoit Blanc, a Foghorn, leghorn type of Tennessee talking man, played by Daniel Craig of all people. Um, I'll say this. I really wanted a cigar after I watched that movie. <laughs> um, 
It's, it's honestly, it really and truly is a great movie. This is one of those movies that allows you, um, it, it's, it's truly in the vein of the great murder mystery, mainly because, uh, and no spoilers here, it, the movie allows you to evolve your opinion or evolve your guess as the movie uh, moves along because parts uh, parts of the main mystery are given to you as you move through it kind of like the old Columbo movies where you know who the bad guy is but Columbo doesn't and it's fun for you to see what you might miss or what you might get to help solve to help Columbo solve it or to help Jessica Fletcher because you can kind of guess what's happening um in no way shape or form do they give anything away because what you're getting piecemeal is helping you to stay involved and stay invested but it's not giving anything away um and so it's just very, very well crafted. Also, I like that the movie, despite the trailers, is not a comedy. It does have comedic elements to it, but it is, it is truly not a comedy. And I think that that's what helps it the most because where people love Clue, uh, it will always have a cult following. I'm one of the people who love Clue. Clue was never designed to be anything more than a satire. Um, one of my favorite satirical pieces on the whodunit uh, is uh, Neil Simon's Murder by Death. And it takes it takes its lead from movies like that, but injects the seriousness of an actual true whodunit a la Agatha Christie, a la even Edgar Allan Poe, or perhaps even, um, oh, good Lord, I'm drawing a blank, Tim Sherlock Holmes. What What is wrong with me? Who wrote Sherlock? Uh, Sir... Walt, Sir Walt... Uh, Sir <laughs> Arthur Conan Doyle. Thank you. <laughs> a Sir Walter Walter Matthau. Sir Walter Matthau. What the pirate? What? No. <laughs> yes, thank you, Arthur Conan Doyle. My God, I can't believe I had that brain fart. I apologize. Um, so it's got a ton of stuff going for it, and honestly, it was really, really, really hard for me to choose a rating, and here's why. Because while the movie does a fantastic job of monitoring the pacing and the injection of its comedic elements into the mystery, it still, it, it still uses, I don't want to say misdirection, but it uses its length, which is two hours and ten minutes to its detriment instead of to its benefit. It's using the length to pad the mystery so that there's more for people to try and do and see. There's already enough there that you can formulate a great mystery and formulate it uh, in a way that you don't need to pad for time. Uh, the other aspect to the film that I have trouble with is Daniel Craig because as much as 
Benoit Blanc is a true super sleuth, you don't, you don't get the feeling that he's in complete control the whole time. And they want for you by the end of the film to much like Columbo, see how in complete control he was the entire time. And you can see, like, for example, with Columbo or with, you know, again, Murder, She Wrote, uh, with uh, Poirot, um, any of them, where and how they've always been in control, despite what they might show to another character in the book, the TV show, the movie, what have you. I, it's hard for me to buy that in the character of Benoit Blanc. It's not that Daniel Craig plays him poorly. I think it's just um, between the affected accent, which even for Daniel Craig, who does a good job with the accent, um, seems a bit much. Um, and again, the time it takes to get through the whole story, especially when the story, as much as it centers around Benoit trying to solve this um Murder has just as much to do with the main character, who is Marta Cabrera, uh, which is Harlan's nurse. Now, Harlan, again, our, um, our, our murder victim, uh, is played by Christopher Plummer and played fabulously by Christopher Plummer. Um, so at the end of the day, I was struggling with a four or 4.5 on this movie and I ultimately landed on 4.5. It is just a fantastic ride. I actually had someone um, the other day tell me something that they noticed out of the movie that literally makes me want to go back and watch it again to see all the other things that I missed. Uh, things that might actually help to solidify the fact that um, Benoit is in control the whole time. It's something that I just don't feel you get out of the first viewing. It's a hell of a movie. It's a wonderfully fun ride. And I think you should absolutely see it. So 4.5 out of 5. What do you got there, Tim? I thoroughly enjoyed this movie. There were only two movies I saw at the movie theater that I thoroughly enjoyed. Not necessarily thoroughly enjoyed, but I just had so much fun watching this year. Uh, Knives Out and... Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It, there's probably one or two more, but off the top of my head, Knives Out and Once Upon Upon a Time in Hollywood takes the cake. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this movie with its warts and all. I would have liked to have seen more of Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Collette, and others because the movie leaves those characters behind about midway through to focus on Harlan's nurse, played by Anna de Armas, who's actually really good. I really liked her character. It's incredibly strong. But they just leave the other family members, uh, you know, uh, outside, and they start to feel more like padding than anything else. I would have liked to have known more about them, like... Jaden Martell's character, who for some reason is supposed to be this young alt-right neo-Nazi sympathizer, you know? There is no point to have him as an alt-right Nazi, neo-Nazi sympathizer other than to make one or two 
semi-funny to chuckle-worthy jokes, you know? I mean, it could they could have expanded on it a little bit more or tie it more into the story. And it's not just the kid. They do the same thing with Tony Collette's character, with uh, with the daughter, with Tony Collette's daughter. I mean, you have these rich characters. They have these quirks that just feel more like padding than anything else. Without that padding, the movie would have been your uh, would have been more of a uh, uh, would have been your short, sweet to the point murder mystery. Um, I would not have liked that because I really like these characters. Could have taken more time to flesh them out and incorporated them more into the last half of the film somehow. Uh, and I really like Daniel Craig. He grew on me throughout the film or during the course of the film. So there you have it. Uh, I, the ending I was totally surprised by. I thought I had it about midway through and turned out I didn't. I give it a four out of five. Go see it. Very cool. All right. Well, then that leaves us with the Irishman. It's over. They're all gone. Frank, it's time. It's time you say what happened. <laughs> Frank, I want you to meet my cousin, Russell Buffalino. Better watch. There's a lot of tough guys around here. Did he tell you? You're not afraid of tough guys, are you? Yeah. I didn't think so. I was one of a thousand working stiffs. Until I wasn't no more. You got a good friend here. You don't know how good a friend you got. Russell, he took a shine to me right away. After a while, he started giving me little things to do. I know you read a lot of things about me. I just want to say I'm sorry. I know I wasn't a good dad. I know that. I know that. I was just trying to protect all of you. From what? You didn't see what I see, what I've been through. A friend of ours is having a little trouble. A friend at the top. Hiya, Frank. This is Jimmy Hoffa. Glad to meet you. Big business and the government is on the attack! You want to be a part of this fight? A part of this history? Whatever you need me to do, I'm available. This is a 2019 American crime film. And, of course, directed and produced by Martin Scorsese. Uh, along with about 20,000 other people who produced and or... Uh, executive produced this album, uh, this album, sorry, this movie. <laughs> um, it's written by, uh, Steve, uh, Zalian. It's written, it's based on the book, uh, the 2004 book, I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt. Uh, obviously it stars Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci. You've also got great performances by Ray Romano, Bobby Cannavale, Anna Paquin. Um, although brief, minor performances by some people as well. Stephen Graham, um, Stephanie Kurtzuba, Jesse Plemons, and even Harvey Keitel. Now, this film follows Frank Sheeran, who is a suspected, uh, in real life, suspected mob hitman who was also involved in the unions and uh, back in the day, along uh, and, a, and a heavy associate of uh, Jimmy Hoffa. And... Uh, and also a part of the Buffalino um, or Buffalino crime family, supposedly. 
and his life and the life and times of him and everything that went on with Hoffa and the um and the crime syndicate and the reunions and stuff all back in the day. Um, it, it's uh, definitely got a slow burn feel to it. They do use the CGI to de-age Pacino, to de-age De Niro, to de-age... Um, oh, good Lord. Um, Joe Pesci. And in an interesting note... Because they are playing guys, they're clearly in their late 70s, early 80s, and they're playing people who are in their 40s and 50s, and at one point, even roughly, say, 25, 30 for De Niro, very, very briefly, only like one scene. Um, they actually had people come in and re-teach them how to walk and comport themselves so that they would not walk like men in their 70s. Even though De Niro's in great health, um, they had to literally go back and teach them how to walk and comport themselves so that they would look like men in their 40s, so that so that when you de-aged their faces, they wouldn't look like old men, you know, trying to walk like 40-year-olds uh, or 40-year-olds walking like, you know, 75-year-olds. Um, so, so they really did try and do a lot of authenticity to allow these men to do their roles for the whole film, but at the same time, give everything that they needed to let the technology do its work. Allow me to sum up here, because I don't have a whole hell of a lot that I want to say about this film other than this. It is one of the best movies I never want to physically watch again. Now, let me clarify this. It's the reason why I do not want to physically watch it is because the CGI was way, 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 way too uncanny valley. Way too uncanny valley. Um, Al Pacino's was probably the best of all of them. Uh, when they are doing the young Joe Pesci, it literally looked like they pasted his head on somebody else's body at certain points. Um, and so it just became very, very distracting. Uh, the other side of this is that even when they were doing it well, um, because they do it well in certain points, um, De Niro has brown eyes and they gave him these piercing ice blue eyes for the film. Um, you know, okay, so maybe Frank Sheeran has blue eyes in real life. I don't know. Um, but all it did was just simply detract from almost every single scene he's in because I'm just staring at these clearly fake eyes. Um, and so despite how amazingly well-written it is and how amazingly well-acted it is and how awesome the pacing is, considering this is a three and a half hour movie that does not feel like three and a half hours. I'm telling you, it is wonderful slow burn, wonderful slow burn. I just... I just don't like watching it. I did not. It was, it, it, I never got used to it. I read some reviewers who were like, yeah, the CGI is kind of wonky, but you get used to it. I did not. Um, it was ever present in my mind. And even though I totally enjoyed it, I mean, oh my God, Joe Pesci does such a fantastic job because it's, it's the Joe Pesci, you know, in a way you've virtually never seen him before. So understated, so soft-spoken, so much power, and you know he has the power. 
Um, and, and yet he just, it's effortless, effortless. Oh, but at the same time, can't stand looking at it. So I give this one a four because it's such a phenomenal movie, but it just, the CGI was just not, it was just not well done on the whole CGI. The de-aging was just not well done. So four out of five, I highly recommend you watch it. Hey, maybe the CGI won't bother you like it did me. Uh, and if it doesn't, then awesome for you because you'd probably give it a five out of five. Uh, what do you got there, Tim? I didn't see this movie at the theater. I watched it on Netflix from the comfort of my own couch last week. In fact, it was the day that it came out. So go me, I suppose. However, I do wish I did see it on the big screen because maybe I would have gotten more out of it. The... De-aging didn't bother me too much. I got used to it after a while. Um, I was impressed by the color changing of Robert De Niro's eyes. I thought they did a good job. However, it wasn't necessarily the eye color. It was the outline of the eyes around the eyeball, like where the skin comes into contact with the eye, the boundaries, if you will, that I had an issue with. It wasn't necessarily the boundaries only of the eyes around the eyes, but also the hairline, the neck, um, especially in well-lit scenes. You could, it, it was just blatant that it was a de-aging technique. However, Throughout the course of three hours and 30 minutes, you have to make yourself get used to those kind of kinds of things. And I did. However, the movie did not need to be three and a half hours long. I will be nice and say that the movie easily could have been three hours. It could even have been two hours and 45 minutes. Once the movie gets to where it's going, gets to what it's trying, uh, gets to the, 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 the elements of the story to where you understand where, which direction it's going to, where it's going to take you, which direction it's going to take these characters, um, the movie really picks up and it feels more like a Martin Scorsese movie. I get it. Martin Scorsese has matured. Um, the last, what you would think is a typical Martin Scorsese movie was probably The Wolf of Wall Street. This is more along the lines of the uh, silence. I, yeah, silence. The movie about the, uh, um, the, the Catholic priests who get lost over in Japan, I believe. It's an overlong film that I didn't find myself getting wrapped up in like I do his other films, like Goodfellas, like Casino, uh, for example. I give this film a 3.75 out of 5. I loved the performances. Everybody was well cast. Al Pacino blew it out of the park. Joe Pesci, Rob De Niro, uh, everybody did. Absolutely loved their performances. Watch this movie for the acting. However, you cannot break this movie up into two or three sittings. You have to sit through the entire film. Now, I would say about halfway through, you can get up and go pee, refill your popcorn, do that stuff, but don't wait a day or don't wait half a day to go back and rewatch the movie because it is important to, you know, stay in that mindset throughout the film's runtime. The first hour was very sluggish. The last hour, hour and a half, was great. 
3.75 out of 5. Don't get me wrong, I'm going to give this movie another watch, and I'll let you know if things change then. Very cool. All right, well, that is the end of the movies for this week. Next week's movies are going to be uh, Marriage Story from Netflix and The Farewell, which is available on VOD. And so, without further ado, I guess we are down to the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on! You set him up and I'll knock him back, Lloyd. One by one. White man's burden, Lloyd, my man. White man's burden. Say, Lloyd, uh, it seems I'm temporarily light. <laughs> How's my credit in this joint, anyway? Your credit's fine, Mr. Torrance. That's swell. I like you, Lloyd. I always liked you. You were always the best of them. Best goddamn bartender from Timbuktu to Portland, Maine. Or Portland, Oregon, for that matter. Thank you for saying so. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can, of course, come aboard the Information Superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and our favorite on Stitcher Radio, as well as track us down on the old Spotify and Google Play and other podcasts directories and so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to don johnson i get to say this i can do whatever i want i'm rich i'm famous and i'm bigger than you take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week madam perhaps we should be going oh very well monsieur thank you so much so nice to see you and I hope very much we will see you again very soon. Au revoir, monsieur. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.